The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hebelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Christopher Hobbs. He is a fourth generation internationally renowned herbalist, botanist, mycologist, and research scientist with over 35 years of experience with herbal medicine. He is also the author of multiple books. However, the one we'll be diving into today is titled Christopher Hobbs, Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide, Boost Immunity, Improve Memory, Fight Cancer, Stop Infection, and Expand Your Consciousness. Dr. Hobbs holds a doctorate from UC Berkeley in phylogenetics evolutionary biology, and phytochemistry. He is also a founding member of the American Herbalist Guild. His website is a wealth of information and resources, including sign up for a newsletter, and you can go to www.christopherhobbs.com. His site is dedicated to all who love and are inspired by the natural world, especially the green world and kingdom fungi. Welcome, Dr. Hobbs. Thank you, Melinda. Wonderful to be here. Well, I wondered, how did you first become interested in mushrooms? Well, it was serendipity, I guess. My dad was a professor of botany. His dad was a professor of botany. And on my mom's side, her mother was an herbalist, a community herbalist, and her mother was a community herbalist. So I pretty much didn't have a choice to be interested in plants and healing and medicine, but I didn't know much about mushrooms. And this is quite a while ago. And so a friend of mine, I lived in Portland at the time, said, well, there's a mushroom conference happening up on Orcas Island. And this was literally in the late 70s. It was Paul Stamets' first mushroom conference. He put on a number of them up there. And so I went with my friends and got my mind blown. And uh, there were some luminaries in the mushroom world, Dr. Alexander Smith, who wrote most of the field guides at the time, and Dr. Guzman, who is the world's leading authority on psilocybin mushrooms. And they took us out on forays, and naturally we cooked up a lot of them, and it just completely set me off like a rocket, and I haven't looked back since. I wanted to ask you, in your bio, it mentions that you hold a doctorate in phylo genetics. What is that? Phylogenetics is the study of the evolutionary relationships of organisms. So basically looking at their family tree. So we take, uh, you know, well, any type of data from plants or other organisms, and then extract a certain DNA regions, and then we line them up. And we see the evolutionary changes based on, you know, changes in individual bases due to mutations. And of course, the more distant organisms are, the more mutations there are, and there are more, more different changes there will be in the DNA sequences. So we use DNA nowadays. Before, we would like look at the flower color and measure the size of the leaves and the hairiness and all these other physical characteristics where they were living. And then we put all that together to try to figure out how 
plants and mushrooms are related to each other by genetics, by evolutionary history. And why does that matter? Well, especially matters for herbalists and even mushroom hunters, because families that are very closely related genetically are likely to share chemical characteristics, pharmacological characteristics. Some, they're a lot more likely to be safe. And if, for instance, in Amanita is a group of mushrooms that are very closely related to each other in the genus, and some of them are lethal. So it's really good to know that you know, it runs in the family, basically, certain characteristics. And herbalists like to know that because certain very important chemical compounds that have healing properties run in families. So if you use one, for instance, valerian, if you harvest valerian in Europe, which is the official one, valerian officinalis, well, it turns out that we can harvest valerian in our mountains here in the U.S., and the chemical and pharmacological and the healing properties are very, very similar because it is all very closely genetically related. That's so interesting. Well, we probably should take a step back and simply define what mushrooms are exactly. Well, mushrooms used to be placed in the plant kingdom. When I first started studying, it was really interesting that all fungi were basically lumped into the plant kingdom. And then finally we realized, and this is, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, we realized that they are such unique organisms that are more closely related to animals than they are to plants. So they were placed in their own kingdom, which is a very large grouping of organisms, kingdom. There's plant kingdom, and there's, of course, kingdom contained the bacteria and so forth. So there are only a few kingdoms of organisms, but fungi rates their own. And so they have certain characteristics, like for reproduction is very unique. Their lifestyle, getting food from their environment is very unique. And they've been around for, first they were thought to be around for maybe 800 million years. And now recently there's new core sampling way, way deep in the earth, showing that they were around probably about maybe even one and a half billion years ago. So we have been interacting with fungi our whole evolutionary time, really. So they've been around forever and they have unique characteristics. But the other feature about mushrooms is that they are so diverse. There are small, tiny ones. There are one-celled ones that are called yeasts. So actually yeast, like baker's yeast, those are a type of fungi. They're in the kingdom fungi. And then there are all these uh, higher fungi that are produce fruiting bodies with bright colors out in the woods. Amanita muscaria, the red one with the white dots that's so familiar in Alice in Wonderland. There's an incredible range of different species that have amazingly different characteristics. But the last point is that fungi are actually fairly closely related to animals. And so we actually share some interesting characteristics like glycogen, the way we store sugars in our body, glycogen, well, fungi also does the same exact thing. They take sugar from their environment after they break down, say, leaf litter or whatever, and then they store it as glycogen. So we can see some similarities there. So they have a unique role in our ecosystem in terms of breaking down mass. So do you want to describe their role in the ecosystem? Well, they they are incredibly important in our world. If you can imagine the forest, for instance, they have such a close relationship with all plants, and that includes trees and forests. 
And they're crucial to not only the health, but survival of trees and all plants. So all plants have fungi in their leaves. So it's like their microbiome, basically. There are all these fungal colonies living in their leaves that are crucial to the survival of plants because they provide, for instance, minerals. And in return, they get sugar from the plant. So fungi are also totally interconnected with trees in the forest. So all trees in the forest are completely interconnected with fungi mycelium, which are the vegetative, you might say, threads that fungi usually live in. And then at some point, of course, they when conditions are right, the mycelium masses together and produces a fruiting body. But most of the fungi is down in the soil or in a tree. And there are these little white threads that are highly branched and going out into the environment, seeking food and, of course, mating partners, but seeking food. And they have powerful enzymes that can break down the cellulose and the lignin of trees that are, are dying or dead and recycle that to release the carbon or the energy for all other organisms. And so the fungi beneath the ground and in the wood, they can take up minerals, they can help the plant or the tree get water resources, and they also protect the roots of the trees from bacterial invasion because they secrete an amazing array of protective chemicals. But in return, they get the most important thing on planet Earth, and that's energy in the form of sugar. So it's a completely wonderful and important relationship that fungi have with basically all plant organisms on Earth. I want to ask about mushrooms and nutrition, of course, because mushrooms seem to have grown in popularity over the last few years. And we see different varieties coming at farmers markets and health food stores, but they have been used medicinally, say, in Asia for generations. Why have we been so slow to embrace them? Well, we like to talk about the two types of people, the way they approach or interact with with the idea of fungi or actual fungus, say if they have molds in their house, or they see what used to be called toadstools popping up in their front yard. And there is a kind of a hesitation there because we know that some fungi fruiting bodies, if you eat them, they, it can be lethal. For instance, the death cap, Amanita phylloides. So there is a, it is passed down from generation to generation that parents will tell their children, don't touch the fungi, don't touch those mushrooms. They could be really toxic. So that is true. But it's a very small number of mushrooms that are lethal. There are quite a few that are toxic that would upset your stomach, but there are only a few that are really lethal. And I always recommend learning those when you're going out and hunting mushrooms. So we call some people and some cultures fungophobic. In other words, they really hold fungi at arm's length. They fear them, or at the very least, they don't like them. They don't like the idea of fungi. They, they equate them to molds, I think, and decay. And then there are the fungi-philic cultures. They love fungi. So the fungi-philic cultures really are throughout Asia and Eastern Europe. Those are two really good examples of fungi-philic cultures that just love mushrooms. And when I was studying and working in China, uh, I worked in a Chinese hospital and lived in China. I would go down to the cafe. 
and the restaurant. And I noticed that everyone was eating soups and stir fries that had mushrooms in them. So I noticed that people were eating mushrooms every single day, even almost every meal. And it's because they're such a complete food. They have incredible protein, vitamins, minerals, trace minerals, fiber. And we've really overlooked this source of food, I think. But so fungophilic cultures in Eastern Europe, like Russia and Germany and and most of Europe really are just crazy about mushrooms and they go out in the woods and they take their family out and they go on forays and the children really love to hunt uh, like porcini and chanterelles that are nice and bright orange. I took my son out when he was like three, four years old and he was always running around the woods and yelling chanterelles because he had such sharp eyes. But our culture here in the U.S. and in, in England Australia, these are rather fungophobic cultures that have really held them at arm's length and not known much about their benefits. And so in the U.S., we've really been behind the times, even though now there are more and more people from fungophilic cultures coming to the U.S. and living here. And so I think that's one reason why the interest and the love of mushrooms are really starting to spread. I mean, I have seen such phenomenal growth over the last four or five years, especially. I was just at a mushroom conference in Nevada City, and it was literally the next morning it snowed, and it was pouring down rain all day long. And we had, in the morning, people were showing up in this kind of rather remote area where there was a like a little retreat center, and 150 people showed up, and it was pouring down rain. I was so blown away. And people had their bags and were wearing rubber boots and raincoats, and they were just really wanting to get out in the woods, even in the pouring rain. And so I've just seen so much growth in interest. So now I think we're really turning into a, a fungophilic culture. Yeah, I hope so. Dr. Hobbs, let me take one break because we're halfway through. And I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Christopher Hobbs. He is an internationally renowned herbalist, botanist, mycologist, and research scientist. And we are diving into his book titled Christopher Hobbs, Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide, Boost Immunity, Improve Memory, Fight Cancer, Stop Infection, and Expand Your Consciousness. Dr. Hobbs, it's true with fruits and vegetables that how a food is grown and where it's grown, even the climatic conditions, whether there's been a lot of rain or drought, impacts the nutritional quality of that produce. Does the same hold true for mushrooms? And what about the mushroom's ability to bioaccumulate toxins from the areas in which they're grown? Yes, that is a good question. Now, when you talk about the nutritional qualities of mushrooms, the vitamins, minerals, some fatty acids, fiber, and pretty high good quality protein, when you talk about that, how much does it vary when mushrooms are cultivated versus when you're picking them in the wild, the way that they cultivate them, the substrate, whether they're grown on rice or wood inhabiting species like reese or turkey tail, or maitake, for instance, or shiitake. Those are wood-inhabiting species, but now they're grown on rice and grain sometimes. So how much does the nutritional content vary depending on the substrate was your first question. And what I've noticed in, in looking and combing through the literature for years, looking for nutritional studies on the nutritional value of mushrooms, what I've noticed is that 
yes, there is definitely going to be variation depending on the substrate upon which they're growing. But if you think about wild mushrooms, for instance, I mean, they're growing on trees and trees have a full complement of vitamins and minerals that they have in them, especially minerals. And then leaf litter, for instance, a lot of mushrooms live on leaf litter and some live on decaying logs, not trees that are dying or that are weak. So fungi live on organic matter, typically if they're growing out in the environment, where the quantity of resources to make vitamins and minerals and so forth and protein are pretty stable. So what I've seen is that, yes, there is some variation, but it's not like food where you grow it in a really poor soil, a depauperate soil that is very low in minerals. is not going to be have its full complement of, of minerals it's not quite like that. I think fungi is more stable as a food source growing in the wild. Now, if you're cultivating mushrooms, I think it's the same. I recently toured the largest mushroom growing company in the world in Monterey, and they produce a million tons, literally, of mushrooms a day around the world because they have different plants around the world. And they grow mainly button mushrooms and portobellos. And they were telling me that they do a lot of nutritional analysis on these mushrooms and that they are very stable. And of course, they give their additives in there. There's compost, there's straw that breaks down that they use for food to grow these million pounds of mushrooms. But overall, they said it's fairly stable because they use the same ingredients time after time and they optimize for nutritional value. Hmm. And then what about bioaccumulating any toxins? This would apply, I think, mostly to mushrooms that have been foraged or harvested in the wild. Right. And mushrooms, like plants, can be bioaccumulators. So, for instance, it was known that for Chernobyl, the nuclear plant that melted down in Ukraine some decades ago, they found that there was very high levels of radiation in the mushrooms and they could not be picked. So mushrooms do bioaccumulate lead and mercury and other heavy metals. Yes, they can bioaccumulate those. And that's a good thing that they're very good at pulling minerals out of the soil and, and the trees and substrate because they're very nutritious with all kinds of zinc and copper and, and iron, which we need. But so Basically, and I've read a lot of studies on this, if they're growing out in the forest, I don't think there's much worry. There really is not a worry. However, if you're picking mushrooms in the city, if you're picking them near a road, if you're picking them near a factory, then yes, that could be a problem. Or fertilizers around agricultural fields where they're using fertilizers that might have high levels of heavy metals, which has been shown then I would be careful about that, yes, because they are very good bioaccumulators. That's really good information to know. Now, your book, we don't have time to dive into all of it, but what I loved about it as a nutritionist is that you've broken down each category of mushroom and you've spoken about what unique properties it has. As your title explains, some are going to be better at boosting the immune system. Others are better at controlling blood sugar, for example. What is it about the mushroom per se? What are those nutritional components that make mushrooms unique in fighting so many chronic diseases that plague our society? Well, all mushrooms, first of all, all mushrooms, including yeast, which are one-celled fungi, contain cell wall components that are tough polymers. They have to have a tough outer 
cell wall because they're penetrating the soil, they're penetrating wood and the environment to look for food and break things down so that the cell walls contain these polymers, especially glucose polymers like beta-glucans, which are highly branched. So they're large glucose polymers and they're highly branched and they vary from species to species. For instance, from reishi to turkey tail to shiitake to the agaric or button mushroom, they're, they're different for each species. And then they're attached to another even tougher polymer called chitin. Chitin is the same glucose polymer amino polymer that is found in crab shells. So you can know that it's very, very tough. So these two are bound together in the mushroom cell wall. And this is their outer cell wall. So all fungi have that. It turns out that over evolutionary time, our body has learned to recognize these compounds because fungi can be very beneficial in many ways, but a fungi can also be a pathogen. So it can create a fungal infection in our body. So our body has learned to recognize these beta-glucans and chitin over evolutionary time. And it turns out that when we eat a safe mushroom that's completely safe, you know, and then we're heat treating it, all mushrooms should be cooked or heated first. It's going to break down the cell walls a bit. And then we're going to eat that, chew it up and mix it with enzymes and swallow it about 60 to 70% of our immune tissue is in our gut. So as those polymers travel down through our gut, it's going to bind to our immune tissue and our body has learned to recognize this is fungi. And then there's a whole incredible, beautiful, exquisite reaction that happens in our immune, you might say, circuitry, B cells, T cells, natural killer cells, phagocytes that are attacking and, and eating pathogens like viruses and bacteria are all going to be upregulated. So by eating mushrooms and eating them regularly, like reishi taking a supplement, it is actually giving our immune system, it's going to put it on, on alert basically for any type of pathogen and even go after cancer cells. So there are many, many studies around the world in labs around the world that show these activities, and they, they've really detailed it down to the individual steps in our immune response that is happening, which cells are upregulated. At the same time, it's not upregulating inflammatory pathways as much. So it, it can actually, by eating mushrooms regularly, it can actually downregulate some inflammatory pathways in our body. It's well known now that chronic inflammation underlies all chronic diseases like heart disease and diabetes and asthma and so forth. So by using mushrooms regularly, like especially reishi is a good example because the beta-glucan content is so high in reishi and turkey tail. Those are the two mushrooms that I recommend people start with if they really want to give their immune system a boost then those are two good ones to start with because their beta-glucan content literally is 50 to 60% of the weight of the mushroom. So there's this exquisite immune regulation that happens. Now, there are also small molecules inside of the mushroom cell walls in the cytoplasm, which are called phenolic mushrooms and, and also terpenes. And these have a wide range of activity in our body, like anti-inflammatory, again, can modulate immune responses, but it can also calm our nervous system in some cases. It has an effect on our nervous system. It can lower cholesterol. Another example, 
and many other beneficial functions that have been studied in labs all over the world. The literature really is voluminous when you get in there. In my book, I review all of the clinical trials that have been performed on these medicinal mushrooms, pointing out what traditional uses are supported by actual clinical trials or laboratory research. You do have such a wealth of resources from excellent sources, including the National Institutes of Health. There are many questions I want to ask you quickly with regard to storage. We go to the farmer's market. We're inspired to purchase some mushrooms now, and we bring them home. What is the best way to store them once we get home? And what is the shelf life? We want to make sure that we get the most nutritional bang for our buck. What is my time frame for eating them? Well, if you go to the market, for instance, and you're lucky to have a range of mushrooms like lion's mane, maybe, or oyster mushrooms or maitake, uh, like we do in the Bay Area here along with, of course, portobello and crimini and button mushrooms. If you're lucky to have a variety like that, or if you're out picking in the wild and you're picking some chanterelles or porcini, the best thing to do is, like if you're picking from the wild, bring them home, cut the, well, in the field, get a knife and trim the base off where the dirt is and the duff and so forth. And then when you get home, I like washing them and then laying them out on towels to dry And then you can actually store them in wax paper bags is the best way to store them that are loosely folded over. So maybe even with a little clip. So you want some airflow. If you leave them in open, then they're going to dry out in the refrigerator within, say, three or four days. If you put them in plastic bags, they're going to start sweating and releasing water and they're going to rot fairly quickly. They're going to start degrading. So don't store them in plastic bags. Store them in wax paper bags is the best way to do it. And you can typically store them under those conditions for a week at least, typically, maybe 10 days even, if they're, keep them in the refrigerator and keep them in their whole form. And so then if if you want to keep them longer and you want to use them longer, most of them can be dried. And so if you have a food dehydrator, which I really recommend getting one, they're not that costly, with a variable temperature control and you have trays, You can slice the mushrooms up and dry them, and then you can store them in canning jars, and you can just rehydrate. It doesn't take long at all to rehydrate the slices, so slice them before dehydrating, and then just rehydrate the slices, put them in soups, use them in stir fries, and even whole, like they do in Chinese cooking, the shiitake, the black mushroom that you get in Chinese cooking, those are all just dried shiitake that have been rehydrated by soaking. So you can really use them for up to a year or two years or three years after dehydrating them and storing them in airtight jars, a good way to do it. So they have good lasting powers, but again, don't store them in in plastic. That's really uh, doesn't work. Dr. Hobbs, unfortunately, we are out of time. Is there one message you want to leave our listeners with? Yes. I mean, there are a lot of products out there in the market. I recommend getting your own mushrooms and making products if you can, boiling them down. All the instructions are in my book and how to use each species is in my book. So there are a lot of products out there, but you have to be careful. And some of the powders, some of the capsules that contain powders contain a lot of starch. These are, this is mycelium growing on grains like brown rice. So use the iodine test. There is a simple way at home that you can buy a bottle of iodine and you can check your products to see whether they contain a high level of starch. 
be a citizen scientist. And all of this is in my book. Wonderful. I've got to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Christopher Hobbs, botanist, mycologist, and he is the author of the book we've been talking about titled Christopher Hobbs, Medicinal Mushrooms, The Essential Guide. His website, www.christopherhobbs.com, is a wealth of information. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with me today. My pleasure, Melinda. I'm so happy to share my enthusiasm for mushrooms. And it's a big community of mushroom lovers, but then it's growing. Mm-hmm.